Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. Welcome to this week's Failed Critics Podcast. I'm Steve Morn. I'm joined by James Diamond. Hello. Owen Hughes. Hello. And for the first time ever, Matt Lamborn. Hello. Uh, Hello, Matt. We are, we are back to being a foursome after a brief dalliance as a threesome. Oh yes. Well, we're, we're we're adaptable. We are we're we're um we're chameleons. We we are yeah. We keep changing. We keep you on your toes, listeners. Well, that's it. So yeah, Matt's come to join us this week. See how he feels. See see what happens. You know. Spent a long time coming, Jack. No pressure. No pressure, Matt. No pressure. <laughs> You've still got to download it though, because otherwise our our view it, our listeners will take a hit. I'm not, I'm not happy with I, that. I've got to represent for the Island Man listenership. That's it. Have we uh, got a big following there? Is that is that the only place where we're actually popular on the Isle of Man? Well, probably, probably as in per capita the population. <laughs> oh, per is capita probably, probably awesome. Yeah. Very significant sample. I, I won't make you tell us all a bit about yourself because, frankly, no one cared when we'd done it, so why would they care if you did either? That's right. Although you can, if you want to learn a little bit about Matt's uh, cinematic tastes, um, check out his uh, 1980s decade of film pieces on Fell Critics because uh, that will give you a little taste. And he's definitely coming back for our Paul Verhoeven uh, special, which we've got coming up in the next couple of months as well. So... That gives you a bit of a clue. Uh, we've got no news this week. Again, nothing's happened in the world of film at all. Soddle. Nothing. It's boring. Film is boring. So we're going to go straight into the quiz, which for some reason Matt has been banned from. Not up to, yeah. not up to me. Up to the dictator that runs this podcast. Not me. Yep. Ah, that's me. Just merely a figurehead I am. Um, <laughs> but anyway, yes, and then we'll be going straight into what we've been watching. But anyway, the quiz. We're going to start off with uh, 1992, The Lawnmower Man. Uh, I'm going to have a guess, Owen. Uh, yes, Owen. P- Pierce Brosnan? It is. Oh, oh shit! <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck! Yeah. Um, didn't even let me get to Mrs. Doubtfire or the Fantastic... I would have had it on that! Oh, <laughs> so would have had it on Mrs. Doubtfire. Fantastic main film made for television, Death Train, which also stars Patrick Stewart and Christopher Lee. Ooh. 
you know, that I, I kind of want to watch that already. <laughs> didn't, didn't even get. Can Owen make us watch that? <laughs> <laughs> didn't even get to Mars Attacks or Dante's Peak. Oh, oh well played, Owen. I've ruined Owen, really. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. what have you picked for us to watch then? You know what? I'm really struggling to think of something we can all watch. But, have okay, you guys, who has seen The Bay? I've not seen The Bay. Have I've not seen The Bay. It's, it's, um, basically... It's like the Barry Leveson. Yes. Yeah, the, the, it's found footage, isn't it? It's unfortunately found footage. <laughs> but it's one of those, I think, mice turn you, Shane. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, okay, and it's on Netflix. I've seen it on Netflix. Yeah. Um, yeah, that sounds like a good choice then, Alan. Yeah. So next week, me and Steve have to have watched The Bay, the and then we'll, we'll chat about The Bay. I thought it'd be a bit easier to get on with than, you know, Mary and Max, which I know both of you struggled with, but this is, this is more like, <laughs> you make that like, this some kind no, of, no, I don't struggle with special needs people. <laughs> yeah. And, and in many I cases, mean... he's not wrong. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm not arguing with that. I'm just saying it's a bit rude. No, I didn't mean it like that. I just mean that, you know, perhaps that claymation, Australian film, an autistic guy is a little bit harder for everybody to get on with than perhaps, you know, a okay. horror fame footage film, which so the bait is. Yeah, right. so cool. we go. All right, then, next week we'll have that one. Excellent. Excellent. So straight into what we've been watching and... We're going to throw Matt in at the deep end and he can start us off with his review of... What did you watch, Matt? Well, I watched a, a triple bill, to coin popular term on the podcast, this week in relation to Halloween. So I'll skim over the three of them quite quickly and focus on one in particular. First one I watched was Toy Story of Terror, which is a, uh, a mini special of the standard Toy Story franchise. Um, supposedly focusing on Halloween, although it didn't particularly have a lot of Halloween content in it. Um, I didn't particularly find this one terribly enjoyable, for must be honest. Have any of you guys seen this one yet? I haven't. Um, has it got the proper voices? Because these terrible Sky adverts haven't, and they're making me want to punch <laughs> things. Well, yeah, it does have all of the, okay. the starring cast of, of voice actors in it that all the previous films have. Okay, that's a start. Which is, yes, it should be a good start. Um, it looks as, as beautiful as it ever has done being animated by Pixar, of course. Um, but it's just shit. I mean, um, <laughs> unfortunately, typically speaking, the Toy Story films have always focused on either Buzz and or Woody. And this one doesn't really focus on either of them. It mo- mostly focuses around uh, Jesse, who's a particularly an interesting character, in my opinion. I hate Jesse. Yeah. I hate Jesse so much. <laughs> so you have an idea of where this is going. So I won't spoil it because I think it's still available on Sky On Demand if anyone wants to check it out and hasn't got around to watching it yet. And if you're a Toy Story fan, you probably should watch it. But it's a case of the animation's there, the big names are there, but unfortunately they forgot to come up with a decent script. And doesn't matter how many good uh, celebrity voice actors you throw in there, without a good script, it's not going to turn out very good at all. Which That's a shame. That's a shame. Um, um, I, I, kind of along similar-ish lines, am I the only one who thought there was only ever one or two good Simpsons Treehouse of Horror? I, I, 
I never got on with the Simpsons Halloween specials, or was it just me? I quite like them. I think, really? yeah, I quite... You're a weird horror fan. Uh, yeah, though, I am, you? and I like the sort of anthology <laughs> themes You're that they weird. use. I'm just weird in general, yeah. <laughs> I'm happy to admit that. But the, yeah, I quite like some of them. Some of them are really good stand-ups of, um, uh, of horror films. The one about the King Kong thing, where they go to the Skull Island, or whatever mm. it's called, and see what do they have there? Apes, but they're not as big, and things, you know. They're just the, the running jokes they have through those, I think, are mm. just... I, I quite like it. The later ones tend to just get a bit ridiculous. That's the later one of all of them. Well, that's all of them. And it's interesting that Matt points out, you know, just throwing celebrity voices into the Toy Story. Yeah, true. That's never a good sign, particularly when you look at something like The Simpsons, that just, as soon as it starts casting celebrities in major roles, it's just, it's it's demoralising because it's, it's, they never, (laughs) never work out well. In my opinion, anyway. There we go. Anyway, sorry, Matt. What else did you watch? Uh, so the next one I watched um, was Revenge of the Zombies, which is a, a very interesting title. I'm sure uh, Owen's popping a little bone and waiting to hear about this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, go, go for it, Matt. So this is from 1943. Um, oddly enough, it's rated U, which is how it caught my attention in the first place. I was, <laughs> I was looking through my Skype and looking for some scary movies to watch. And uh, this popped up on the same night as the next film I'm going to talk about. And I thought, okay, it's, it's that old, it's U-rated, it's about zombies, I have to see what this is all about. So the film stars John Carradine, who is the father of Kill Bill's David Carradine. So it's an interesting starting point. And he plays a mad scientist who's uh, reanimating uh, dead bodies, particularly focusing on... <laughs> The bodies of, of dead former black slaves, <laughs> which is very, very <laughs> odd. Uh, but keep in mind as we go through this, is it a U-rated movie? And how it is a U-rated movie, I'm really not sure. <laughs> um, so he's a spooky uh, mad scientist. He's reanimating dead black guys uh, to film, uh, build some sort of um, super army, as if he's trying to create a sort of shock trooper um Nazi Germany project, if you like. Uh, but he begins by reanimating his wife, who is one of the first characters you see in the movie. And she, none of the people reanimated in the film look like zombies. They're basically just very slow human beings. They're all in pristine condition, and his wife's absolutely gorgeous. Um, and she's wearing these flowing white silky garments, looking like some sort of sex symbol. And it's just really quite bizarre. And they have this strange way of summoning one another by hooting like owls. <laughs> it's, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Uh, at the same time, it still manages to be extremely amusing, although the, um, the humour is very sort of racial, uh, edgy, borderline racially offensive humour based on the fact that um, a lot of the starring cast seem to have these black slaves and are often referred to as masters um, by these people and that is, it's very it's very uncomfortable at times um, but at the same time it, it will tickle you in an odd kind of way which in itself will make you feel quite uncomfortable um, the film in itself in terms of the title you, you're expecting some sort of dramatic incident where zombies would start attacking people that's not really the case Basically, the mad scientist played by John Carradine is, as I say, effectively 
rebirthing dead slaves in order to become his slaves and eventually they become conscious and start to disobey him and turn on him again maybe it's not giving too much away i surely it's pretty obvious what's going to happen from the beginning um but yeah it's, it's very interesting the the humor in it is is spiky and a little bit edgy but uh somehow gets away with it and um, there aren't, isn't any blood and guts in there as you would perhaps expect from a typical zombie movie hence why it is you rated but the humor itself should probably warrant it being a much higher rated movie particularly with the bbfc than some of the stuff that comes out today it's, it's really quite bizarre and if i was to sum it up in a whole the zombies aren't particularly zombie-like as as we would imagine today, particularly with the current trend of zombie movies and what we see on TV with The Walking Dead. They're uh, just more like um, it's it's zombies in in the essence of their their brains are under control by someone else rather than the sort of decrepit um, flesh-eating zombies that we're more common with these days. And it's more like Django Unchained meets Frankenstein. You have this whole racial element and this master and servant dynamic going on, which both refers to the zombies and these uh, slave owners that are the stars of the movie. And it's a whole sort of reanimation theme, much like Frankenstein. It's very weird. Someone like Owen would absolutely enjoy it. <laughs> if you don't like black and white movies, don't go near it. But on the whole... It was it was a good watch, um, but didn't provide any any big scares. Yeah, no, it seems interesting, definitely. I think a lot of that, it, yeah, you touch on the point about them being more like um, mind controlled and you know black slaves and that kind of theme to it. A lot of the older zombie films, like White Zombie or I Walked with a Zombie, they are you know plantation workers who were under some sort of voodoo curse kind of thing that's the that, i think that's originally where the, the, the term zombie came from so it's not that surprising i guess in in the sense that they're not the actual shuffling walking dead that romero sort of coined if you like but yeah no definitely sounds interesting particularly your point about the humor being quite dated and sort of maybe verging on being quite offensive um yeah it seems was... to be Something like this wouldn't wouldn't get out today. Absolutely, hundred yeah. percent wouldn't get out today. Um, so it's it's worth watching just so you can see what type of dialogue and script writing people got away with right at the infancy of the industry. It's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, no, it it, it does sound it. Um, I have to check it out. But the um, I was going to make a point as well about the uh, the the U rating. If you look back at like the old um. Universal films, you know, you've got Frankenstein, Dracula, and that kind of thing. They are all U-rated as well, which I always thought was quite, quite odd because they are a little bit cartoonish, but they're still quite, you know, the message to some of them is still quite a dark theme for for such a, um, a low-rated film. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's a, it's a weird theme they have for these old horror movies. They didn't particularly take them seriously, I don't think. Yeah, it's more sort of pantomime. Than, uh, than the sort of scare fest that we're probably looking for when we're trying to do a Halloween special, yeah. if you like. So uh, it's it's certainly an interesting piece, but uh, if you're looking for something that's going to make you jump out of your seat, this isn't one, unfortunately. Okay, so moving on to the last movie that I watched out of my Halloween triple bill was the uh, 1978 uh, remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. 
which is the first time I've actually seen this movie. So this was a little bit of a treat to happen to catch this on my Sky Planner. So the film stars uh, Donald Sutherland, a newly role for Jeff Goldblum, and the legendary Leonard Nimoy. Um, so the film, in a nutshell, is um, about a um, an alien uh, spore which manages to travel to the planet Earth and begins slowly uh, taking over the planet and replacing people with duplicate copies of themselves who are devoid of emotion. Um, it's a very interesting subject matter. Um, it's probably a little bit more sci-fi than it provides scares, but it is very uncomfortable in places. Um, so uh, the main protagonist of the movie is Donald Sutherland's character who is starting to put the pieces together as to why everyone around him is acting incredibly strangely and trying to get the will to believe him that people are being replaced by these um, alien replicants, for lack of a better term. And of course no one believes him, but, but unfortunately for him it's because most of the people he's speaking to have already been replaced and he is slowly being encircled by the entire uh, populace of the city in which he's... Uh, inhabiting and everyone around him is becoming one of these um, alien duplicates of themselves. Um, some of the scenes in it are, are particularly odd and will appeal to sci-fi um, sci-fi fans, particularly the scenes in which the, um, the human beings have been duplicated by these alien plants uh, and they're being um, Birth, if you like, out of these sort of vegetable pods, these giant pods, which are churning out the, the copies of these people. It's um, it, by today's standards, it would look very odd and scruffy, but I can imagine in the seventies this was particularly out there and quite impressive. Um, one thing that it did let me down on is that it makes it quite evident from the beginning that the good guys aren't going to get through this. Uh, and therefore it takes away a little bit of the suspense as to how they may or may not uh, get around this alien invasion or stop it. It's pretty obvious from the very beginning that they're not going to. Um, so I think that is a, a bit of a downfall of the movie and it's spoiled the suspense for me because it took it away at quite a, a crucial part of the movie. But without going into detailed spoilers, um, the ending to it is extremely cool and, mm -hmm. and similar to that of, if I want to compare it to something like Dawn of the Dead, where it would allow you to presume that um, either the whole world is completely doomed or there might be some sort of premise that humanity might get through. It lets you sort of draw your own conclusion without sort of defining one out for you, which is a touch I quite liked. Um, but it is a bit of a sci-fi classic. I'm going to guess that uh, Owen at the very least has probably seen this. What did you think of it, Owen? Uh, yeah, it's it's a good film. I think um, you mentioned the ending. That's one of my favourite things. I, I originally um, heard about Invasion of the Body Snatchers because someone was telling me about how great the ending was, and I mistakenly watched the 1956 version instead. Uh, and the uh, ending to that is completely different. And I just thought, what about what? That wasn't fun. That wasn't a brilliant ending. That's not an all-time classic ending. I'm not sure what. But the point of what that was, it wasn't until I watched the remake and I thought, oh, okay, I get it. That is a really cool ending and just a fantastic scene to finish the film on. Um, yeah, it's it's pretty iconic for those who haven't seen it. Um, and yeah. I like any kind of ending where it lets you sort of draw your own conclusions. I think that's uh, a good aspect of storytelling within the script of the movie. I don't know how um, 
faithful that is to the original source material from the from the novel or from the original mm. movie. But I particularly enjoyed it. I think it's it sealed up the package quite nicely. And I would definitely recommend seeing it for anyone who's into uh, classic sci-fi. It does provide a little bit of a, a horror element to it. Uh, yeah, it's a pretty good film. Uh, so, James, while we've got you currently, do you want to tell us what you watched? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, my Halloween film that I watched, I, I, I watched a couple, uh, including the one that I think we're going to talk about later. Uh, but the one that really impressed me, and the one I was actually very excited about, was uh, Werner Herzog's take on the tale of Nosferatu. Uh, Nosferatu the Vampire, or Nosferatu Phantom de Nacht, uh, from 1979. It's directed by Werner Herzog, and it stars his longtime best friend, and close collaborator, Klaus Kinski as well as Isabella Adjani and Bruno Gams, uh, who kind of reached fame later on in his career playing Hitler in Downfall. Now, Herzog has said that he believes that Murnau's uh, original Nosferatu from 1922, I think it is, um, is the greatest film ever to come out of Germany. That's uh, what he said. Now, he waited for that to go out of, uh, go into public domain and decided to remake it as a, as a tribute, basically. And the one change he made was he was actually able to reinstate all the original character names, which Murnau had changed in a kind of desperate and it didn't work attempt to avoid being sued for basically ripping off Bram Stoker's Dracula while it was still in copyright. And that whole story in itself and the fact that most of the reels of the original Nosferatu were destroyed uh, due to legal action is a really interesting story in its own right anyway. But um, this version is very, very... It's very true to Murnau's film. Uh, in fact, some of the some of the scenes are shot-for-shot shot tributes, remakes, you know, whatever you want to call them. The thing that's different about this version of Nosferatu, apart from the fact that it's in colour, um, is, for me, it's Klaus Kinski's performance, which is absolutely... Oh, it's just mesmerising. It's the first time that I've seen a Herzog and Kinski collaboration. I know Owen's a very big fan of, uh, of Where the Rock God, and that's also in his box set, which I picked up at a charity shop, a box set of five, Herzog Kinski film, which I'm now very excited to work on the way through. Um, the great thing about Kinski's Nosferatu is he actually brings some depth and some sympathy to the character, and not in a kind of teenage goth or Morrissey loving <laughs> way like I am, in the sense that, oh, oh God, woe is me for being a vampire. Blah, blah, blah. Genuinely, the, the loneliness that Kinski portrays uh, in this film is it's heartbreaking at times, actually. And there's there's a scene, and there's no real spoilers here. This film is really old. It's based on an even older film, um, and 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 a really old story. But the the scene where Nosferatu comes across Jonathan Harker's wife Lucy, and basically begs her for just some love, any love that he can, she can give him. Uh, and when she says no, there's no 
histronics, there's no temper tantrum, there's no <laughs> it's just this, this slight wail of someone that just is just so heartbroken. And that to me is the, the genius of this film is my only complaint would be there's not enough Clash Kinski in it. There's just not enough Nosferatu in this film for my liking. Although Bruno Gans does really, really well as Jonathan Harker, the real estate agent who goes to Transylvania and who is uh, uh, attacked by Nosferatu and then has to make his way back to uh, to his hometown of Wismar uh, to, to stop the count. It's, it's full of typical... It, it's a very, It's very much what I have heard and from my limited experience know of a Herzog film. The pace is not exactly, you know, hairs on the back of your neck, blood rushing pace. It is is a very slow and deliberate film. There are some very odd scenes which on you know, taken out of context make no sense whatsoever. Throughout Nosferatu's um uh, house, throughout Count Dracula's castle in Transylvania, there's this weird gypsy boy constantly playing the violin um, and there's no explanation for it but it's it's all about the atmosphere and um, what's great about this film and again I've heard it about other films and I'd like to get Owen's take on this having seen it where Wrath of God is that Herzog actually really likes the the environment to be one of the characters um, and actually just likes to spend time in these in these locations with the scenery um, and that in itself I think to Herzog is just as important as the characters motivations is, would that be fair Owen? Oh yeah, definitely in Aguirre I mean the, the whole of the uh, the Amazon River that they're on is just it is part of the film for a reason you know it, it, like you say it almost becomes a character of its own and it reflects everything that that, that Klaus his character Aguirre is going through. So yeah, it's that's a spot on observation I would say. Mm. I, I, and there's there's just other great bits. Um slow motion film of bats flying, um, which just really take you by surprise very early on. And it actually opens on a crypt of mummified corpses from Mexico. Um, which apparently um, Herzog just got in and rearranged them. Uh, <laughs> um, so that as he films them, then you basically see them in order from birth to death, essentially. And and that, I suppose, is one of the great things that I'm already getting excited about watching some more Herzog films. Because I've only really watched his documentaries before, plus Bad Lieutenant. This is the, only the second uh, fictional film of his that I've seen. Is um, seems to be an adventurer as a director. This was made with a crew of 16, which is twice the crew he had for Aguero. Um, it's made on a real low budget. And that, one of the really interesting things is I watched the German language version of this, but they filmed it simultaneously in English. Uh, and on my DVD, you've got exactly the same film, but with slightly different performances as they're all speaking in English. Um, and it was still made for a tiny budget as well. Uh, it was a critical and a relative commercial success. And I have to say, I, I really enjoyed the film, but Klaus Kinski's version of Nosferatu is currently, is now, my new number one cinematic definition of uh, Dracula or vampirism. So it was, it was very, very enjoyable. Excellent. Uh, Owen, before me and you talk about paranormal activity, 
Do you mm-hmm. want to tell our listeners what else you watched? Yeah, um, I I can't remember whether I actually mentioned it on the last podcast we did because it was a couple of weeks back now. But um, it was a film that ever since I found out about it, I've been desperate to watch it. It's called Haxan, Witchcraft Through the Ages. Um, I tweeted about it quite a lot. I think I even um, sort of took hold of the, the Bell Critics account to tweet about it as well. Uh, it's a, a Danish stroke Swedish film from the 1920s, 1922, in fact. Um, so it's a silent film. It's in black and white. And it's actually a documentary. Sort of mixes mockumentary elements in with a documentary about, um, well, witchcraft as it has been since medieval times through to how we understand, well, I was going to say how we understand it today, but it's obviously when it was made in the 1920s. So very exciting premise to it, I thought. It's a massive, huge influence on lots of uh, horror films. Uh, well, every film, I think that sort of most of the directors who saw it were influenced by it. You know, it, 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 things such as Faust. So, have any of you seen Faust, the, the Murno film from the twenties? That was yes, uh, yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah. yeah. So you know the, the scene with the flying um, yeah. creatures. That is just. A, and when I watched this, I noticed that as well. Actually. Yeah, so that's a direct influence on it. So you get things like um, Carl Theodor Dreyer in The Passion of Joan of Arc, his film. There were shots in there with um, Maria Falconetti, which are just identical to what what appears in in this. And this predated that by about six years. So the the scene with the old lady who's accused of witchcraft, you know, and she's going through her mm. trial. That is very right, similar yes. to to yeah. To okay. So you know, it's massively influential film um, for a reason because it is just technically technically brilliant. I was a little bit unsure about whether it would live up to how much I've hyped it up to myself because I, I do have this I did have this image in my head of it being this fantastic you know early documentary and wouldn't it be amazing to watch it and see how how influential it was so I I was a little bit cautious going in but I am relieved to report I I really enjoyed it I thought it was brilliant I know that you did watch this uh, James and you just said you know as much but we kind of had different opinions on this, I think. So I'm going to talk about why I think it's good. Okay. <laughs> and then yeah, you, can, you can add a, re- a review to after that. But, um, okay. So first of all, I'm going to acknowledge, yeah, I, it is a little bit disjointed. That's fair. Okay. I, I, I recognize that because it's divided into chapters, not every chapter is, um, as consistently well made, perhaps, as other chapters. So that's one thing I did observe and I'm, you know, I'm willing to, <laughs> to give up that um but i still think it was just very entertaining overall um it did lose me slightly occasionally i mean i'm talking sort of with regards to the narrative some stories uh some of the fictionalized stories they, they create tell tales of what's happening in medieval times or they have you know a bit later on or closer to to modern times even um about dealing with witchcraft they do seem to lack a little bit of clarity about what it is they're actually demonstrating. Sometimes it just feels like a sketch about some people trying to get potions from cat shit and poison or whatever it was, toads and things. So it's just, a, a, I mean, it, you don't really understand everything that it's trying to say. And it is presented in very much a lecture sort of way. You know, you've got a a guy with a cue tapping on a board occasionally to point out things, which I suppose there wasn't really any other way they could present some of the information because it's a silent film. There's no one to actually narrate it. Um, 
but you know, so I can forgive it that it's limited to to what was available to them to tell this this uh, to get across their their point. But um, some of the chapters in it are just fascinating. It explores the links between sort of they call it hysteria. We would probably know it today as mental illness. Uh, but the links between hysteria and sort of medieval witchcraft, so things about how people are treated, how people would respond to the actions of certain people, so someone who's perhaps um, demonstrating uh, paranoia or, uh, you know, hallucinations, they treat these as people who are either suffering from a curse or are actually witches themselves. And so it just, I mean, it's fascinating to see as a documentary, how these things were dealt with. Um, and it still feels, I mean, it doesn't feel dated in the sense that what, what they're looking at is told in a very dated way. It's just, it just feels like it's, it's quite an, of that time, look at what happened in medieval times, you know. So, it's, yeah, I thought it was quite fascinating in that regard as well. But, you know, so chapter four, I think, would be my favourite example of where it, instead of doing the this very factual presentation of information, it suddenly turns into this very theatrical presentation. Where you've got lots of sketches, or well, I'm going to call them sketches, but you've got lots of scenes, such as um, a scene with some witches who are dancing around a fire in the woods um, with the devil, and they're, they're all sort of playing these bugles and stuff. And it's, it is, I mean, it's mesmerising. The, the, the special effects in it are just brilliant, I think. Um, it gives it a very haunting quality. Uh, but it, I mean, there's it, the stuff in there as well, like the. Okay, so in chapter four as well, you get the return of this character who appears throughout the film, um, who's playing the devil, I think. This very grotesque creature. He's got, director as well, isn't he? Yeah, that's him. And he's yeah. just got this sort of protruding tongue and he's sort of churning butter with this, this butter churn, which is, I think, quite. Um, it's a That's got to be a euphemism for sexual yeah. desire. I mean, that is just. Or, you know, oppressing sexual feelings and stuff, you know. It's just um, really out there, crazy kind of, kind of, this, this creature guy. And it's, it's just disturbing as well. Um, you know, but then, then you get weird scenes like there's two old ladies who have a, they take a shit in a bucket and then throw it at a door. And it's meant to be, it's just completely bizarre, some of it. And it, but I've got, I, again, it's fascinating to me. I just think this is just the, the way it, it's it, it's exploring these different themes and the way it's presenting them. Um, it's unlike any other do- documentary I've seen. Um, yeah, that's a fair point. <laughs> it's just it's different. It's different. And um, well, it does. I mean, the final chapter is is quite a somber ending to it. It talks about the statistic of you know eight million women, men, and children that were killed during the witch era, and it just gives this realization to to what's previously gone on in in the film um and it makes you i mean you do feel quite shameful that the human race could do this to each other you know i know that it, it it's more about the ignorance they didn't really understand what was going on and they only used the logic that, that was available to them and you know all the, the the religious themes through it and what you know perhaps organized religion has forced these these metaphors onto them about what someone's experiencing but it's it still, it's still. I still felt quite sad towards the end. I thought it was, it was quite a, a depressing ending to the film. Um, yeah. So I mean, I'm sure it's probably not the movie everybody would have wanted. 
um, or perhaps even expected it to be. But for me, I think the crucial thing was it lived up to my expectations and, and I, I thought it was just fascinating. I, I really enjoyed it. So, James, oh, good. What, what did you not like about it? Do you know what? I will say what I did like about it first. Though. Um, firstly, the print, uh, the, the film four version that I saw was... Mm-hmm. In cracking condition for a film that's it was amazing, 90, over 90 years old. It didn't, you know, I was expecting it to be really faded mm. and uh, cracker, but it's, uh, I know that there's been a restoration of it, and I'm assuming that's the print that they used. And yeah. it was a fantastic uh, restoration. And yeah, you know, you're right, it did look fantastic in places, and it was obviously very influential. And I did think it was a very interesting, um, uh, yeah, yeah, it's. It, it's a curiosity, it was a, mm. and, and I think it was a very important film. My own personal disappointment just came from, actually, some of the things you've already picked up on, the disjointedness of it is something I struggled to get over, and I did find myself just not being quite drawn along with it in places. There were some odd chapters, like, you know, the, the woman getting some cat shit and mm. then some piss or something to get that fat bloke to... Yeah, fall in love with them, and then like I kind of, and I I swear I didn't look away, but like all of a sudden I'd go, hang on, what's going on mm-hmm. now? And yeah, it it just, it, and it, it it's a shame because I really wanted to like it, and and like I say, I can see every single bit that you praised it for. I I agree with you. I I just. It's definitely uh, an acquired taste. You know, silent cinema of its yeah, anyway can be a bit of an acquired taste simply because it's not what we've grown up with. It's very much out of our comfort zone as modern film fans. Uh, and so going back and watching silent films actually takes a bit of effort. Um, and sometimes that effort can be really rewarded. And I, I, there are some great silent films that I really enjoy. This one just didn't quite do it for me, but I, I can, I'm glad I watched it. It just, it's just certainly, I don't think I'll bother again. Oh, well, I was considering going out and buying the Blu-ray if it's available. <laughs> so it's it, apparently that's the restoration that a lot of people are talking very, very highly of. Yeah. So, and yeah, the, the weird PowerPointy type bits as well. It's, it, it was just bizarre, actually. Like you say, there's no other way they could have done it. Mm. Uh, and in a way, I'm glad I've seen it because that that was weird. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I, I don't... It, it sounds bad. I don't watch films to see a man point a stick at a picture. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of not what I want to spend my evenings doing. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. I think, it, like I said, that bit was kind of... Um... Dated. But I think there was no other way they could have. No, 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 exactly. So not without millions of cue cards popping up all the time, and that would have just made it even more um, yeah. disjointed. So yeah, okay. Apparently, there's um there's a shorter version, a slightly cut version with a jazz soundtrack, which is um has got a voiceover narration from um William William S Burroughs, okay. and that's available on YouTube. Which does sound quite trippy and interesting, and I might I might give that version a go. Hmm. Okay, so Owen, I think it's left for me and you to talk about Paranormal Activity. I'm happy to chip in on why I don't like Paranormal Activity. I'll let you. And Matt's more than welcome to chip in as well if he has any thoughts on it. <laughs> it's, it's been a long time since I've seen Paranormal Activity, but it's a film I quite like, so I might be able to contribute. 
Well, hey, welcome, welcome to the team, uh, Owen and Steve. Matt. <laughs> I I watched first one again. Owen's watched all of them. Yeah. Um, I mean, I I think they go downhill quite quickly. The fourth one, I didn't get on with at all. But the third, the first one is mm-hmm. very good. It's it's something reasonably new with that kind of film, and it definitely has a desired effect of not just making you jump because a lot of crap horror films make you jump, give you a, give you a bit of a quick jump because something comes out of nowhere. But Paranormal Activity was one of those ones where you went home and you didn't really want to go to sleep because you just thought something's <laughs> going to happen here. And and then I think the second one had the same effect to an extent. But past that, the tricks were all the same. It doesn't really have the same effect. So then they got to do something with the story to kind of keep that going with the plot, with the whole uh, arc with the the girl Katie, I think her name is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and for me, they just kind of lost their way a bit, especially in the fourth film. With that, with that in mind. But you know, the initial first two films, the effect of actually scaring you and leaving an impression on you when you leave the cinema definitely worked better than a lot of horror films I've seen since. And I haven't really found one that has the same effect since. Yeah, I mean, the um, closest, I think, because it, it, it scared me as well the first time I went. You know, scared in so much as, you know, I've said it before with other horror films, if it makes you run up the stairs a little bit quicker in the dark, you know, on your way to bed, I think it's done its job, really. You know, if you, you're switching every light on as you enter a room, then, yeah, it, it's scary. The only other film recently that made me feel the same way, I think, was Insidious. But again, that does a lot of the same sort of tricks as uh, paranormal activity. So it's not really surprising to me. But, um, yeah, so, okay. The first film, then, do you think it's still actually a good film? Do you think it would be... Yeah. Um, yeah, you do? do yeah, you it's, like still, it? it's still a good film. Obviously, when you watch a film for the second time, the the effects like that are obviously lessened because you know what's going to happen. The element of suspense has gone, but it's mm. still a good film. The story the story's still good. The 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 jump's still there to an extent, and it does leave you feeling a bit, you know, switch the lights on, run upstairs quicker after mm. you've watched it. But obviously, to a lesser extent than the first time you see it, but it does yeah. it does hold up well. Yeah, I agree. I think that's what I've dis- discovered whilst rewatching all four of them together is that um the first one held up much better than I expected. See, when I when I watched the, this uh, Paranormal Activity and pa- Paranormal Activity 2 originally, I always thought Paranormal Activity 2 was the better of the films. I thought it just polished things up a little bit that were kind of rough and um uh, uh, I suppose they didn't you know, have, a, have a budget in the first one as well. Exactly, yeah. They, they could spend a bit more time sort of adding a bit of finesse to the story and to the, the way things are shot, I suppose. Um, I'm just assuming that. But um, on the rewatch, I think the first one actually, it's that rawness about it that actually keeps you, it keeps it fresh. I mean, the, the jumps are all the same, of course, um, and you do get a little bit desensitised to it, but it's got, it's got a lot of charm about it, I think, for the first Paranormal Activity. I think you mentioned about the story as well. It's as you rewatch it, there are more things that you pick up on. I've seen it about three times now, the first film, and each time you do pick up something new, 
um, every time you watch it to do with the characters. Particularly as um, I watched Paranormal Activity three first, I tried to because it's the you know it's a prequel set in the eighties. I thought if I watch that one first, then stuff that happens in there will perhaps bleed into the next Paranormal Activity film, which um, you know perhaps add shed a bit of light on certain scenes. And it kind of it kind of does, but what I realised with Paranormal Activity three, um, it's almost a standalone film, you know. In the way that Paranormal Activity, you could watch Paranormal Activity and never watch the sequels and you won't have missed anything. Whereas with Paranormal Activity I agree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Paranormal Activity three has the same method to it, in which you could watch Paranormal Activity three without ever watching any of the other films and you know, it would just be a, a decent horror film in its own right. Whereas Paranormal Activity two and four, they are very much reliant on you seeing the other films in the series, um, because they do try to push the story further. Um, and there's there's things that happen with the characters in it that really you would miss out on without watching the other films. So I'm, I sort of understood perhaps why Paranormal Activity four wasn't so well received on the podcast last year. Because I know you, James, and I know Jerry weren't particularly um, keen on it either. I wasn't keen on the first one, I'll be honest. And I'm sure I've said it before, and I'm not going to go over too much old ground. I just, I didn't really care for the characters. And, yeah, I've certainly said my piece on why I think some fan footage films work and some don't. Mm. And I, I... yeah, I, 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 I just can't suspend my disbelief in something that's trying to be so real. But that's all I'll say on that. Yeah. Um, well, I think the, the, you talk about sort of um, suspending your disbelief. I think with hmm. with Paranormal Activity, it's very much trying to be, if this was real, in so much as you had strange things happening to someone and they sit at cameras, it treats them very much as real people doing something quite realistic, I think. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, yeah. No, I t- I totally agree. It's just part of my brain goes. I know the ghosts don't. <laughs> <laughs> there is that. Too. And so and so for a ghost story to scare me. Yeah. Um. It it kind of needs to do other things. That's why. For example, earlier this year, I loved the Conjuring. Really, really enjoyed the Conjuring. Um. And it didn't. And it didn't need to resort to making me think it was real. It just told a really good ghost story. And that's what I. Like I said, I know it's me, and I know the paranormal activity is very popular, and a lot of people really like it, especially the first one. And I, I can accept that. It's just, it's just, it's like some people with musicals. It just doesn't work mm. for me. I love the um, just the sort of indie nature to the first paranormal activity as well. Hey, Aaron Pelly just decided that he's just gonna, it's gonna make a film. This thing that happened to him, I think he was in his basement and a a box fell off the, the shelf all on its own and it sort of freaked him out and he thought that was quite scary I'm going to make a film where to, to replicate that feeling and he just went and did it and I think that's one of the things I really liked about um, Paranormal Activity he didn't think about you know same footage was it wasn't a popular genre back when it was made I think he actually made it in was it 2006 or 2007 um, but I don't think it got distributed until 2009 not widely anyway but I think that was just his opinion was, well, fuck it, I'm just going to grab a camera, I'm going to set this up, I'm going to have a quick go at writing a script, and then I just want to replicate that feeling of, of being terrified by something. Um, something completely, you know, normal. I think something fell off the shelf, 
a curtain moved on its own, something in the shadows kind of make makes it look like there was, there was a figure standing there. And I think that's brilliant. You know, Ben Wheatley did a similar sort of thing with Dan Terrace. He just went to his mom and dad's house. He set up um, a few cameras around the house, uh, just sort of bog standard digital cameras, and then filmed the story he'd made and wrote with his friends. And I think it's just there's something about that that just appeals to me. You don't have to stick to the norms of what people decide is should be be in a film. You know, the whole sort of having three camera things and you know, blah 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 blah. I think it's just I don't know, inspiring, I think, is the word I'm looking for. Oh, that's fair enough. No, I, I, I completely appreciate the uh, creativity of the film and the business model of the film as well. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, what I think is, and it's not it's not Aaron Pelley's fault, um, what I think is an issue is that Hollywood then went, brilliant, we can do that uh, about 15 times a year. Yeah. <laughs> we could just churn out these. And, and what they do is they end up spending money and making them looking more polished than they should be and at least the first parody it had an authenticity to it it had a kind of daring streak to it which i at least admired even if it didn't quite push my buttons sorry Steve. i think i've kind of hijacked your <laughs> your bit of the podcast again that's fine don't worry about it <laughs> yeah um, and did you know the, the have you seen the trailer for the spin-off for paranormal activity came out is, this week is this the hispanic spin-off yeah, marked ones. Cool. No, and it's you, not. No, that looks interesting. And then you, because it's completely, it, it it ties in supposedly to the series, but it's a spin-off, so it doesn't involve any of the characters. It's just something similar happening to them. So you've got the same sort of symbols on the wall, and you know the triangle and the circle and stuff. And then you've got Paranormal Activity Five, the actual sequel, which is due out in October, I think. So. Yeah, I'm looking forward to them, even if it doesn't seem many other people are. Uh, anyway, I think that's all for uh, what we've been watching. We'll be uh, back after this quick break with our new release reviews featuring Thor, uh, The Dark World. So, uh, new release reviews, and I believe we're starting off with... Uh, Philomena, which we don't have a clip for, do we? Uh, no, we don't. But uh, sadly, not. But we can be told all about it anyway. So. Okay, yeah. Um, Philomena is uh, the new film from. It's actually co-written by Steve Coogan, directed by Stephen Frears, and it tells the story of Philomena Lee, who was an Irish woman who uh, became pregnant as a teenager, and as was the way often in uh, the Republic of Ireland, was sent to a Magdalene sister's uh, kind of laundry house where she was forced to do labour and had her baby taken from her and sold to Americans. And as an elderly woman, she meets a disgraced former spin doctor and journalist, Martin Sixsmith, and stories about her trying to find out the truth about what's happened to her son, basically. Um, so, yeah... Just to let you know, it, Steve Coogan co-wrote it, produced it, and also plays uh, the journalist Martin Sixsmith. The magnificent Dame Judi Dench plays Philomena Lee, and it's pretty much a two-hander actually. There's a there's a few other characters in it, um, but this is a this is a road trip and a kind of buddy movie, 
and an odd couple movie. It's a lot of these different quite fun bits in there. It's funny at times. Um, it's sentimental at times. Actually, for me, one of the biggest overarching emotions I got from it was anger. It's, um, it's based on a true story, and it's not just based on the true story of one woman. Uh, it is the true story of one woman, but this one woman is far from alone. Thousands of women uh, were, were basically forced into slavery by the Catholic Church in Ireland and had their babies forcibly removed from them and sold. And um, one of the great tragedies, one of the great crimes in all of this is that they were very... Uh, they just... they offered no help in trying to track down these children and, and that's that's one of the key elements of this film and it's a it's a really beautiful uh dynamic between coogan and dench uh, uh dame judy dench is this lovely old woman who despite everything that's happened to her still bears no ill will to these people who did it to her um you could say she's institutionalized or you could say that she just lives on a higher plane or something, um, and then you've got the the cynical, lapsed Catholic um, man who's been around uh, politicians and the media, and his determination to try and get some kind of justice that Philomena doesn't really want, and that's uh, that's the key to this film is that relationship, how that plays out. Uh, Owen, what did you think? Uh, I only got back from seeing it earlier on, actually, so I've got n- no notes whatsoever written down about this. Is I'm just going to bring this one, but I really, actually, found that I enjoyed it quite a lot, a lot more than I was expecting to. I wasn't that excited, despite having Steve Coogan in it, who I absolutely love in pretty much everything he's done. Um, it, I wasn't that excited about seeing it, but it it got quite a lot of positive reviews. They were talking about it a lot on the radio. Um, on uh, letterbox.com site I use to, for film reviews it was getting a lot of positive reviews through there as well so I was almost I was pretty much convinced to go and see it because of how well it was received and it was it was really an enjoyable film um yeah I, I mean like I say I've got nothing written down so you, you're gonna have to leave this one James on your own I'm afraid that's absolutely <laughs> fine uh, well we've had the conversation about Steve Coogan on here before I remember at Glasgow Film Festival um when I spoke about the look of love uh, have you seen that yet? Out of interest. Yeah, I really liked it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, now I, I really enjoyed it, but I, I said at the time there were a few moments where I found it difficult not to see Alan Partridge um, with Steve Coogan in this film. Didn't see it once. I, I genuinely forgot I was watching Steve Coogan at times, and it's one of. I think it's really right up there in terms of my favourite Steve Coogan performances. It's it's really measured uh, and actually quite restrained in places, and it basically, he basically gives Judy Dench the room to be um, this fantastic, warm, wonderful character. Um, and I know there's there's some there's some Oscar talk uh, certainly for a nomination for Judy Dench, who's never won the big one. She's won the Best Supporting Actress before. She's been nominated a few times. Um, but yeah, it, it really is one of these films where a simple story told well and acted beautifully just comes together so well. Uh, 90 minutes. I know this is all, I always bang on about the length of the films. I've seen some 
ridiculously long films for no reason this year. And this just never outstays its welcome. Um, there's a few twists and turns in it. certainly didn't turn out how I expected mm. at times. Yeah, same here. Um, that was what, actually, I mean, I was really shocked by how it ended. It's just yeah. such, a, fan, such a, a fantastical story. You can't believe it's based on something real. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and definitely one of those where the less you know about the real story, the better when you're going, I think. Um, because I learned about this story from this film. I, I didn't re- All I knew was that little synopsis I gave at the top of the review. And um, it, it's a genuinely wonderful film. I, I, I just, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. But at the same time, unless you've got a heart it will make you very angry at times. Mm. Uh, especially the opening scenes, which um, parts of the opening are played in flashback. Um, basically about the young Philomena describing what happened to her. And, you know, being a parent myself, uh, I but I don't think you need to be a parent to sit there and be horrified of the situation these young girls found themselves in. Um, and, and it just makes you so... Because you expect governments to dick around and shit on their citizens and things like that. But when... You know, I was like, if the church isn't, if the Catholic Church isn't the good guys, then what is the point of them? That's the kind of anger I got from there. Was I know they're not alone in causing harm and misery in the world, but you know what? Their job is to do the opposite, and when they don't, it makes me so angry. Uh, and watching this film did make me very angry. I've got no problem at all with people's individual faith, and I think that's one of the beautiful, the beautiful things about this film is actually. It isn't an atheist attack on religion and faith. It's an attack on what Eddie Izzard, I've heard referred to in Stanley, on organised dickheads, basically. Individual faith can be a very beautiful thing. It's not something I personally hold, but you, know, you see the, this character of uh, Philomena Lee. That is, that's a person I admire. Her faith is something that keeps her going. Um, the the organised stealing of selling of children by the church there is something which is an absolute stain of that uh on that organization beyond all the other crimes that they you know have been covered up by the church as well and it is really interesting actually in in an industry which tends to not really go too far in terms of criticizing the catholic church um it's great to see a mainstream film just not hold its punches in that area Mm. I mean, I'm not sure if it was completely an attack on Catholic Church as a whole, though. I mean, the way that it came across to me was it, it was more... I mean, he says in, as much in the film, doesn't he? Um, yeah. Steve Coogan is six minutes. He just says that it's about the evil nuns. And I think that's <laughs> that's kind of what the film is about. It's the, this particular... Um, uh, well, I don't know what... I forgot what the word is. Covenant of nuns, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just that it's that those particular ones and the way they've dealt with this situation. Oh, oh yeah, but there were there were actually there were, well as it said there were thousands of that that wasn't that wasn't an isolated case in Ireland. No, How, no having that's not. Had since then been better. I'll be honest, I didn't know too. I'd heard of the Magdalene sisters, but I didn't know too much about it. Mm. Um, uh, and yet, no, it's not it's not every member of the church, and it's certainly not every kind of. Uh, you know, area and, and, and church and that. But it is really interesting that it was 
it was quite outspoken in its criticism of the church as an organisation. Um, uh, and like I said, I find that quite interesting and in that you don't tend to see that much. And maybe it helped that it was an English production rather than an Irish or an American production, which may well have yeah. kind of pulled back a little bit mm. from some of that. Mm. Um, but, you know, I think come the end of the film, you'll, you'll be, you will have fallen into the mindset of one of the two main characters. Um, <clears throat> and I certainly found myself feeling like Martin Sixsmith did, put it that way. Yes, I mean, you definitely relate to the character quite, I mean, in so much yeah. as you can just put yourself in his shoes and you just think, yeah. what, this is, it's outrageous. I mean, that's the only yeah. way for it. And you're right, I was sitting in the cinema and I think this, this is just absolutely despicable. Um, but it, you know what, as well, it was a really clever film in so much as you could have these absolutely despicable moments in it, but then you you would have things that just made you laugh. There was a yeah. lot of laughs in it as well. It wasn't constantly yeah. on a downer. It was it was a very funny film, I think. Yeah, it was. There, there was some, and uh, you can tell it was kind of co-written by Cougar. Um, there were some really nice, there were some great pathos in there, and just some really silly moments, like um, on her first visit to Washington, and uh, uh, Philomena Lee doesn't want to go out, she wants to sit in and watch Big Mama's House, and she kind of describes the trailer of Big Mama's House <laughs> and says it sounds hilarious. And I think, I can imagine my grand yeah. doing that, actually. And it was just this real, and there are these real moments of levity in there, which it needs, because... Yeah, the story itself is quite a tough one. Uh, and I think it just, it really marries the two styles very nicely. And like I say, there is there's a real odd couple uh, feel to it. There's a road trip feel to it. it. It ticks a lot of boxes, but it does it all really nicely. Yeah. Now for something completely different. Yeah. That <laughs> is going to talk us through uh, Bad Grandpa. Okay, so... Um... Bad Grandpa is the latest film to be uh, directed by Jeff Tremaine, who seems to have carved himself out a very niche career from remaking the same film and TV series over and over again. But because it's Jackass, that's okay. Um, before I get started, I'll just say for the record that I am a massive Jackass fan, so my views on this may be ever so slightly biased. But um, uh, it is a very funny movie. Um, but it does lack the charm of some of the previous Jackass efforts ever so slightly. I think perhaps because it lacks some of the ensemble castle, some of the old Jackass movies uh, kept consistently throughout the same bunch of characters over and over again. Uh, but it offered quite a lot of variety as compared to this one where you're primarily focusing on two characters. But the story follows uh, Johnny Knoxville as the bad grandpa himself, Mr. Irving Zisman who is, at the start of the movie, finds himself um, single for the first time in many years after his uh, old wife has departed very suddenly. And during the funeral, his daughter shows up, uh, who's about to be carted off to jail to dump upon him um, his grandson uh, that he needed to get the youngster across to the other side of the country to take him to uh, his father to look after him whilst she goes to prison. And hence um, proceeds a sequence of hilarity as the two travel via car from one end of America to the other to return the the youngster to his uh, biological father. Um, 
without um, spoiling it too much, it, as I was saying, that the the two of them don't get on at first. Uh, there's a lot of uh, tension between the two. Um, um, provides some awkward but funny scenes. But as the film goes on, um, the bad grandpa starts to have the more grandfatherly instincts towards the kid as he should do and by the time he gets him to the other end starts to feel that he should keep hold of him for himself um, they become sort of uh, it becomes a, a buddy movie by the end of it and it's uh, it's quite sweet to see um, the Irving Zisman character played by Moxville who's been in previous Jackass efforts before it's a very likeable character um, always seems to be uh, gentlemanly on the outside that then usually involves some sort of effort into trying to get some young woman into bed in some shady, awkward manner, but it provides plenty of laughs. However, the, the kid who plays uh, the grandchild, uh, Jackson Nickel, whilst he, he comes across as quite a very good actor for his age, I'm not sure how old he is, but he must be less than eight years old. Um, he's a little bit annoying at first. He's just basically playing the whiny kid role, uh, how long is it going to take till we get there? That kind of thing. But towards the end of the movie, he sort of let off the leash and his own character develops quite nicely and he gets some of the larger laugh-out moments of the film. Um, so it sort of builds up the, the rise of, of the youngster in the movie as, as the film goes on quite nicely. That's paced out quite well. Um, on the whole, it's not the high point of the Jackass series, but certainly not a low point at the same time. I think it's one of those films whereby you can go and see it at the cinema. It's a good consumable entertainment for a one-off viewing. Uh, you know exactly what you're going to get. It's going to be some cheap laughs, but on the whole, it's not something you probably necessarily need to see again. But if you're a Jackass fan, it's a very safe bet. So uh, if you're into any of the previous efforts, go and see it. You'll have a good time. I'm surprised there's actually a story to it. From the trailer, it just looks like a series of, you know, because he plays the similar. Does he play that same character or similar character in the Jackass series? Yeah, it's almost the same thing. And um, but so one good thing about the trailer is that it doesn't give out all the best gags. There are some okay. of them. Some of oh, that was one question I had yeah. actually. Yeah. So it does a good job of of saving the biggest payoffs for the movie itself. Because I've thought when I saw the trailer, I bet this is all the best jokes. Mm. In the trailer, get you to go see it, and then there's nothing, no new content in there. But no, they they do hold it back quite well. I'm not going to talk about the specific gags um, that we're referring to, but if you went and see it, you're going to get some some fresh laughs out of it, and they are the the most powerful laugh out loud moments of the film. Okay, is it is it bad that I gen when I first saw the trailer, having not seen Jackass for absolute years, I genuinely thought it was an old man. <laughs> I did not realise it was Johnny Knoxville. Um, I kept seeing his name attached to it, and I assumed he directed it or produced it or something like that. It's literally today I realised that it's Johnny Knoxville dressed up. That's, yeah, that's quite good makeup then. Yeah, that's quite good. Man, I thought it was pretty good makeup. That's what I'm going to say. Okay, uh, now we're on to then. Uh, for the dark world, uh, here's Cliff. I know you seek vengeance as much as I do. You help me escape Asgard and I will grant it to you. Vengeance. And afterward, this cell. <laughs> you must be truly desperate to come to me for help. 
What makes you think you can trust me? I don't. And you should know that when we fought each other in the past, I did so with a glimmer of hope that my brother was still in there somewhere. That hope no longer exists to protect you. You betray me, and I will kill you. When do we start? Okay, so that was a clip uh, from the new Thor movie. The second film in the Avengers Phase 2 initiative after uh, Iron Man 3. And it picks up, uh, for Thor anyway, after where the the Avengers movie left off. He's, he's back in... Um, Asgard. Asgard, that's the one. Back in Asgard. <laughs> Uh, Loki's in prison and he has basically brought peace to the Nine Realms but then there's some elves um, Dark Elves who were from the beginning of the universe who made everything dark and then Thor's granddad defeated them put that in back That's like Steve wrote this Steve's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the backstory I, like I, I have a degree in Norse mythology I'll have you know <laughs> I don't. <laughs> no, didn't, did not expect that to be true. No. Um, but anyway, yes, it does have a kind of Lord of the Ringsy kind of feel, the four films, when you're actually in, um, you know, not on Earth. Oh, they're full on fantasy, yeah. yeah. Comic book fantasy films, yeah. Um, but this one, for me, fell flat. I felt that the, the plot was a bit... I mean, we're going to do a spoiler alert later, so we won't go into it in too much detail now, but the plot kind of fell a bit flat for me. It, it You never really got a sense of real danger from the bad bad guys in it. And then there was always the kind of Loki in the background, and you're thinking, well, he's obviously the bigger problem. He's going to be a... He's going to be a prop. It, you know, there was no kind of... I don't know, and it, it all just seemed a bit overcomplicated as well. The way the elves were going to do their their plan. I, do you know what? I'm going to disagree. I really enjoyed it. I, I genuinely <clears throat> had a lot of fun, and I think that's the key thing here. Is I had a lot of fun watching. Yeah, it didn't. Do you know what? The plot is pretty much the same as the first uh, the first Thor film, uh, and also the Avengers. Um, that a lot of these films are, are much of a muchness when it comes to plot and I think they live or die by their by their characters and their set pieces and for me that's where this film delivered was uh, Chris Hemsworth I really enjoy his take his Shakespearean take on Paul he's got a lot of charisma he's grown into the role and Loki is probably my favourite film bad guy of the last 10 years maybe more and so the fact that I'm just getting another film with Tom Hiddleston as Loki is brilliant. Although someone did, someone on Twitter, I can't remember who it was now, I think it might have been Stuart Herited actually, the Guardian writer, said that Loki's like the Dave Lamb from Come Dine With Me of uh, <laughs> comic book baddies. And I kind of get that a little bit. But I love it. I love his sarcasm. I love his little bits. Yeah. Uh, just... Yeah, fuck it, he's fantastic. He's brilliant. Um, and, and and I'm sure no one... Act, I'm sure that's the one thing we can all agree on. 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the, he, the film he, only really became interesting or enjoyable when he was on screen for me. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I think it's um both him and Eccleston actually. They could have we we could have had more of them on screen for my money. I would have preferred to see more of um. I mean the the, the okay. I don't think that Thor as a character was developed at all in this film until the the second post credits sequence. I think that was one of the worst things about the film is that it just has Thor being Thor, and that's it. There's nothing mo- nothing more to his character at all at any point. Whereas Loki, he goes through quite a you know. I know it's not you don't have to judge a film solely on it, but he he's the only right. character who goes on the journey, so to speak. You know, he yeah. Although I like to think of him as the main character of the film. Yeah, and it, you know the the fact he and maybe if you look at it from that angle, maybe that's maybe that's what we're looking at here. I don't know. But then but you know I... that takes a little bit away from Eccleston as the elf guy. You know. Oh yeah. Who who who? I'll, I'll be honest. I think was a little bit let down by his character, because Eccleston was really good when he was on screen. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently about 15 minutes of backstory has been cut out for pacing reasons. Right. And maybe that has affected the film slightly. I would assume so, because another person who I, I think is genu- uh, generally quite a good actress anyway, but Natalie Portman in this was very underused as well. There was the odd moment... I thought she was used more than in the first one. Yeah. Maybe. Well... mm, It's an improvement, maybe, slightly. She was used mainly as a device in this film. Slightly less pointless in this one as she is in the first one. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, well, that's an improvement. She spends most of the time either being moody and moping about, or she's asleep. So it just seems completely pointless, really, to uh, put more of her in it, but then do nothing with her character. Maybe I suppose I can understand that. Yeah, I certainly wouldn't say it's a perfect film. Uh, There were some boxes it ticked along the way for me that it had to tick for me to enjoy the film. There's there's, there's a few really good scenes in here that I can't really go into detail and talk about that later. Um, Both of quite a kind of solemn nature, but also of a a funny nature uh, as well. What I will say is Hopkins phones in Odin yet again. Hopkins does not give a shit about this character to see. He was terrible. Well, not terrible. He's just really, yeah. He's just really bland, and he was in the first one as well. And that's a real shame. We've already. Talk- um, I'm just going to interrupt there because we've already talked yeah. about Coogan a little bit. Did you watch the trip yeah. with Coogan and Bryden? Yeah. And you know Bryden does the impression. Oh yes. Of Hopkins. That is when whilst I was watching Thor. I thought this is this could yeah. just be Rob Bryden doing his Hopkins impression. That's a really good point, actually. It's yeah. all he was doing. It was like someone yeah. doing an impression of Hopkins as Odin. Yeah. Um, no, that's a really good point, actually. Um, one other person who I really liked, though, but I do know some people weren't so keen. Cat Dennings playing uh, Darcy, the intern, who was quite a surprising kind of breakout star from the first one, um, and maybe. I know, again, this seems to split a lot of people. I quite enjoyed the uh, the London band seats mm. uh, there. The, uh, uh, there was some... Stellan Skarsgård was nuts. And that was, I, I enjoyed that. So, I, I just... I, 
to me, it did what I wanted it to do. It was a sub two hour comic book film with some great set pieces and it made me laugh and I could still feel the the hands of Wedden over parts of the script um, and things like that. And apparently he was heavily involved because he was also, um, he was the one that persuaded Chris Hemsworth to do the gratuitous topless scene near the beginning. <laughs> um, right. Which part of me thinks was a little bit of a, uh, part of me hopes and thinks it was a little bit of a cheeky uh, retort to Star Trek's, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, mm. um, gratuitous woman in underwear. Um, do you know what? If we can just get to a place where we say anyone who's a very beautiful specimen of a person can get gratuitously naked on the screen, I, I don't think anyone's going to have a problem with that, are they? As long as, as long as we're just being even, as long as it's men and women, I think we can all get along fine, mate. Uh, I, I see <laughs> what your point is. I have a little bit of a problem with that sometimes, but I'm like, as has been discussed already, I'm a bit weird anyway, so... <laughs> yeah. But yeah, uh, so yeah, it, it's it's um, received it's mixed in here actually. It's been pretty well received. It's done very well at the box office. Um, well, it would. Yeah, it would exactly. Yeah, which is good for Marvel. Uh, they keep uh, cranking it out. Um, I'll, I'll but compared to the this because this is the second film of Phase Two yeah. of the Marvel Cinematic yeah. Universe. Okay, first was Iron Man Three. I thought that was much the better film. That had... Iron Man 3 is one of my favourite films of the year, though. Yeah, I mean, that had a much better pace to it. This just really dragged at times. I got really bored in the middle. Um, I, 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 it had a good plot. It had good twists. It had good had funny bits. It had good characters. It had a bad guy that worked. This one, you had some good funny bits, but you didn't have a bad guy that you knew enough about for it to work. The plot and the pacing was off, and... The only thing it kind of did better than Iron Man 3 was the, um, towards the end, I think they both culminated in the same sort of style. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't know what's really spoiler territory. All I'd say, I'd say the the big climactic battle, basically, every superhero film has a big climax. There's no spoiler there. Big climactic battle again is actually, one of my favourites of the entire Marvel Cinematic uh, Universe. Yeah, it was done very well. It was done really well. It didn't overstay its welcome. I, even I thought Iron Man 3's ending was 10 minutes too long. Um, the Avengers ending was fantastic and epic, but still went on a touch. Um, this had humour. It had a... Yeah, I, 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 I think it paid off with, and it paid off in other ways very well. And maybe that, maybe I went out with higher thoughts of the film because of the last half hour rather than the first hour and 15. Maybe that's the case. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll talk about Thor more in spoiler alert, but before we get onto that, we'll recommend you some stuff to watch during the week. Uh, so, Matt, you've been quiet for a while, so why don't you start us off? Yeah, sure. Um... Film I'm going to recommend. It's in one of my all-time top three lists, as per my uh, bio page on the Film Critics website. It's on um, Sky Select, I believe, at 10 o'clock on Thursday. It's uh, American History X, which is the story of a reformed uh, neo-Nazi and his struggles to protect his brother from uh, 
and that C uh, gang were dominating their, their local uh, city and stopping to fall into the pitfalls of the life that he's led for the last few years. Um, in a, uh, a Nazi gang, it's a fantastic film. Um, it will um, raise some eyebrows for a number of reasons, and it has a couple of particularly um, iconic scenes which people seem to remember from the film. But if you've not seen it, it's a must-see. Check it out if you can. And it's about the only other notable performance that the guy from Terminator 2 did. That's before right. He got fat and retired. <laughs> before before he started giving his uh, young son cocaine. Exactly, yeah. Nice. Okay. Uh, for me then, Saturday, uh, about the same time, quarter past five on ITV1. They've got re- they've got past the crap Star Wars. They're onto the good ones. Episode four, New Hope, but also starting ten minutes later on Five Star, whatever that means, is the Princess Bride. So hey, good good choices all round for you on Saturday lunchtime. I recommend recording one, avoiding the football scores, watching both films back to back, then watching Max the Day without knowing the scores. I'm going around Steve's Yeah, it sounds like a great day. <laughs> If you can, if you can actually get through a Saturday and watch Match of the Day without knowing any of the scores, you're a better man than me. Yeah, that's what, I, that's what I strive to do every weekend. Sometimes more successfully than others. Too obsessed with my fantasy football team. Can't do it. <laughs> yeah, same Can't here. Do it. Same here. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, James. Uh, yeah. Apparently, uh, a few weeks ago, I recommended. Um, oh, hang on, film- quickly, quickly. Oh. I caught the last five minutes of this, and it was crap, but if we're all into Marvel films at the moment, at 11 o'clock at night on Saturday on Viva, which you'll have if you've got preview, is the 1990 Captain America film. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, which has a 3 out of 10 rating on IMDb, a 9% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm, I'm pretty sure I've seen that. The, uh, Matt Salinger plays uh, Captain America. Killed his career, didn't it? Yeah. Just started selling tennis balls instead. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, James, where were you? Yes, yeah, so the film that's currently sat at number two on my list of the year and was meant to be out a few weeks ago and obviously got delayed for some reason. It's actually now out on Monday, November 11th. And that is Blackfish, the uh, documentary about SeaWorld and uh, Tilikum, the killer whale that's claimed three lives. And it's, again, it's one of those films that's just made me very sad and very angry, but it's a very powerful film. Anyone who is interested in animal welfare or even just, just a brilliant documentary, it's an absolute must-watch. And Owen? Uh, well, it'd be pretty hypocritical of me to pick anything else wouldn't it after I'm going to make you two watch it but The Bay on Netflix um, as James said it's directed by Barry Levinson um, quite a high profile director for such a low budget B movie um, but it's about a, basically it's a horror film same footage some stuff happens in a small fishing town and people start getting sick and so on yeah really good I recommend it Excellent. Um, so that is um, this week's podcast. Unless you want to hang around for 
spoiler alert for Thor, um, I'm suggesting you don't if you haven't seen it or else. So you've just suggested they don't if you've got a bad feeling about the All right, well, you might just have happened what happened to Matt with Iron Man 3 if you, if you do hang around. Yeah. yeah. Um, still not watched it yet. <laughs> I've still not watched the sixth sense because I know the twist. <laughs> what a horrible thing. But anyway, um yeah, so Matt will be disappearing for spoiler alert, but thanks for coming on the podcast for your first time. Yeah, thanks for having me guys. Uh and thanks pleasure. Thanks to everyone for listening and everyone for contributing this week. Uh and I would say back to spoiler alert briefly, don't listen if you have not seen Thor a dark world yet. Yes, so, quick spoiler alert for you for Thor Dark World. We'll talk about the film in depth, all the post-credit scenes, all the bits that we couldn't talk about for people who haven't seen it because it'll ruin it for them. Um, where are we going to start? Let's start with I post-credit think... scenes. Let's start with the yeah. first yeah, we'll one. Back with yeah. Yeah. Well, let's start with the first post-credit scene in which two of Thor's friends, the girl and the man with the beard, I can't remember their name. Sif. Sif. Ray Stevenson. Yeah. <laughs> That's not very Norse name. <laughs> uh, but anyway, they, they go to a man called the Collector to give the Aether to him to kind of protect. Um, Owen, can you tell us more? You like comics and that. Can you tell us a bit more about this guy? I believe he ties in with the Guardians of the Galaxy film that is coming up. It's played by Benicio Del Toro. Yeah, I'd love to be able to, but I don't really know anything about him. Um, I, I've read a little bit about it. I, I did that whole thing where, if you're like me, see the post-credit sequence, then go home and Google it, and then go on to Wikipedia to find out a little bit more detail. Yeah. Um, so it, yeah, it's quite it's, a, a it's quite a common character in most <clears throat> sort of comic book series <clears throat> anyway to have some guy in space who collects species. That's pretty yeah. much what the collector. He's apparently one of the real elders of the universe. Yeah, isn't he one yeah. of the old, oldest people in the universe? Yeah. And he collects all these kind of things, whether it be creatures or artifacts, to kind of try and protect the universe from from stuff. Yeah, that's pretty much. He's definitely not a, an all-out goodie. That's that's for certain. Yeah. No. Although they must believe he has best interests at heart because or else they wouldn't give this thing to him. Yeah. It was a really camp performance from Del Toro, wasn't it? It was just this bizarre mm. um, it, yeah I, I kept expecting him to um, go into his uh, usual suspects style <laughs> back to I'll flip, you. I'll flip you for real um, It was all a bit weird that bit wasn't it? Yeah. It was um, and it's interesting, I'd, I'd be interested to know how far into shooting uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. I know they're shooting it at the moment, um, but it would be interesting to see how much of it changes between post-credit sequence uh, and then. But Guardians of the Galaxy is very, very much, again, from what little I know, a whole different kind of kettle of fish in terms it, of. It, well, it's space opera, isn't it? Not, it's, yeah. I've not really had anything like that in the Marvel Universe so far. By, by, by the sounds of it, Guardians of the Galaxy will tie in more with the third Avengers film than it will the second. Apparently, this is all setting up to be about the Infinity Gauntlet. This is what I have read. It's, uh, 
we've now got the, the Tesseract and the Ether are both versions of Infinity Stones, uh, which hold huge powers. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been reading Wikipedia. And, uh, Didn't you read it? Uh, yes, exactly. And this is where the, the Thanos um, post credit scene from Avengers ties in. It's all going to kick off in the third one. And they're getting more and more... Ca- it, it is getting to the stage where you think, how the hell are they going to do Avengers 3? Because they're going to have Ant-Man. Um, we've just heard, apparently, uh, Kevin Feig was talking about they're developing Doctor Strange. Uh, you'd, you'd have thought they'd have a gamble on Black Panther at some point as well because you know kind of need a, a black superhero or else people start accusing him of being racist it means nothing to me but I'm assuming Black Panther is some kind of uh, is it from the uh, 60s civil rights era <laughs> uh, I don't know when his origins were but he's yeah basically an African uh, sort of tribal guy who inherits this power yeah, a little bit I mean, racist already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. They, they've got War Machine, haven't they? They've, they've got, got a... Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, and who is um, apparently supposed to play quite a big part in the next sort of few um, Marvel films, I think. I think he's supposed to be in Winter Soldier. Yeah, he's in that along with um, Black Widow. Mm. I quite like how they're sprinkling new characters out into different things. The other thing I will say about Guardians of the Galaxy, there's two things I'm very excited about in this. Um, first one is it's directed by James Gunn, who directed Super, which wasn't perfect, but it was fucking bonkers. And it's just another example of giving a big Marvel film to uh, a director who's at least going to take some risks uh, and definitely has a voice and a style of his own, which is great. The other thing is as well, Chris Pratt, who is all of a sudden, uh, Chris Pratt kind of rose to prominence in the US sitcom Parks and Rec. He's playing Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, he's or, He was in the five-year engagement as the brother of Jason Segel, but he's also the main character in the new Lego movie, which looks <laughs> incredible uh, as well. So he's really come to prominence. I'm a big, big fan of his as well. Uh, and it's also got um, Karen Gillan with a head shape as well. So it's going to wow, interesting. Mm. Um, so Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, second post credit scene then. Well, Much, it's quite significant, I think, in yeah. that it changes the dynamic of Thor now, because I think from this point on, he's going to be more Earth-based than he is as Guardian, which I think is where he works best. I know they tried it a lot in the first film where it's the fish out of water type you know story but I think having him based on Earth and less of this boring Asgardian fantasy craft that's it just is absolutely nothing for me I think yeah, I quite like that I did quite like the Asgardian stuff yeah I mean it was I get the point of why they were doing it and it's because you know it, it makes it a very unique character you know he, he his story takes place somewhere you couldn't have Iron Man, or you couldn't, yeah. you, you know, you couldn't have Captain America in this world of gods kind of thing, you know. And that helps in not being able to, like, um, this whole thing that they've got through all of these Marvel films is how do we get around the fact that they can't just call up the Avengers to solve this? Precisely, At least that yeah. helps. It gets around that a little bit easier. Yeah, but I mean, it's still bored the tits off me in the middle, but uh, you know. <laughs> I thought it looked fantastic at times. I, 
Oh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, especially... Uh, the look, I still wasn't convinced by the look. The, the, they looked like characters in fancy dress most of the time. With the costumes and the sets, it just looked too... ridiculous. And I know it's by its very nature, it's quite ridiculous anyway. <laughs> but it just, it, yeah, you know, didn't do anything for me. But I had this, it just reminded me, someone said on Twitter long before I actually went to C4, that it reminded them of uh, Chronicles of Riddick. And it had exactly the same effect on me whilst I was watching. That did flash through my head, actually, when I was watching. I'll be honest, that actually flashed in my head because I thought about the kind of, the very small scale story of the first one and then it went to this big expansive thing I actually thought that despite having not seen Chronicles of Riddick and, but I did think Owen's going to mention Chronicles of Riddick I'm sure yeah. you have so that's, that's interesting yeah, um, <laughs> we did get a bit of the Shakespearean stuff but no sorry you're going back to the post credits scene um, yes Thor comes back and it's clear he's going to spend his time with Jane Foster now um, although uh, Maybe it's just me. I I thought that was what was going to happen from the bit before the credits rolled, where Thor was talking to Odin, which turned out to be Loki. I, I to me the the post credits scene felt almost kind of superfluous because I all already thought that was what was going to happen. So, yeah, I mean it did. It definitely implied that. Um, but I think yeah. having the, just the final rubber stamp on it to say, okay, well, he has returned to Earth. He's taken his gap year from his yeah. duties on Asgard. He's just going to spend some time with Jane, um, which is understandable. But, uh, yeah. you know, <laughs> but the, um, yeah, it, 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 I think to to leave that for the post-credit scene, I know you said you were the only person in the cinema. I was the only person in the cinema who stayed for that. I, there was only I, one other guy who stayed with us to watch it, and that's because as he was walking yeah. downstairs, he noticed that me and my wife had just stayed in our seats, so I think he must have twigged that <laughs> there was something yeah. else happening. So, um, it was a, I, I did I did rather like the um, frost dog, the huge creature <laughs> chasing pigeons across mm. the London sky. That was that was a nice little touch. Yeah. That. Um, okay, so post credit scenes. Uh, mixed but well, neither of them re- uh, well uh, one set up a film a little bit down the line uh, still a uh, shame to see no uh, Sam Jackson as Nick Fury in there but I suppose that was to be expected um, okay which bits did you really really enjoy basically, I, basically I, when, when Loki was around especially when he kept shape-shifting and he shape-shifted into Captain America yeah the Captain America that was cameo fantastic yeah awesome <laughs> That was that, and that was a bit that got genuine laughter in my um mm. uh, in my screen, and it was just really nicely done. Apparently, that counts towards their uh their contracted um uh, yeah. appearances in films, which is quite nice. But no, that was that was a really nice bit, and it was quite nice to see um uh Chris Evans get to do something a bit different with Captain America now, which because you could tell he was doing something a bit different. And that was nice. Um. And my, one of my other favourite Loki bits, the kind of the deadpan ta-da, <laughs> dark elves. Well, that was not like you say. Everything Loki did was fucking. Awesome. He's just brilliant. And I, but I'll be honest. And again, I'm this is just because I'm soft in the head or something. Part of me genuinely thought maybe they had killed him because it seemed the right thing to do for the character. Obviously not for the studio, um, and obviously not for future films. His it, 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 apparent ending would have been would have been a nice. It felt satisfying. Well, it, it was redemption, wasn't it? It was Darth, yeah. it was Darth Vader esque redemption. Yeah, mm. 
Yeah. But uh, obviously Loki's never going to do that. I'll be interested to see how they kind of pass that one off. I mean, uh, it, it'll probably the, Trixie, isn't it? The thing is, they might never use him again. It, yeah. it just leaves... Oh, Tom Hiddleston might go, uh, uh, you know, next time... Because it doesn't look like there's going to be any way to shoehorn him into a, a, the second Avengers film. So you'd have to think he'd have to wait to the third, fourth film. Now, Tom Hiddleston's getting quite big. By the time it comes around to making Thor 3, he might think, oh, it's not ready for me. If they're, if they're paying Robert Downey Jr. $80 million to be in the next Iron Man, um, they'll pay for Tom Hiddleston because the weird thing is there were women in my screening who kind of like almost fainted when he came on screen all chained off and stuff like that. He is he's the sell of this film now. He's the genuine sell of this film. But I mean women though I mean has he has he And he loves comic books. He genuine he went to Comic Con as Loki. He went and addressed the uh, the crowds at Comic Con as Loki, and you can see him having the fucking time of his life. He's struggling not to break character, smiling so much because he's loving. It. He'll definitely be back. I mean, what do we make then at the end in a twist? Has he is he killed Odin, or has he just kind of replaced him and and done away with him to some dark corner or some dungeon somewhere? You know, he's obviously got designs on on ruling Asgard. I- um, I hope he's not killed Odin off. I hope they've not killed Odin off screen, despite the fact that Anthony Hopkins must give a shit about him. He's clearly a very important character who, if you've just killed him off screen, that'll be shite. I can't see them uh, doing that. I mean, he's such an integral character to Thor to just get rid of him whilst you, you know you don't see that dramatic scene. That's what Anthony Hopkins loves doing as well. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That'll be in his contract thing. Death scene. Yeah. But. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think what it's done, is, the way that it's ended is you don't necessarily have to have Thor going back to Asgard anytime soon, but no. it will be set up so that he has an excuse to go back there at some point. At some point, I mean, the place will be falling into At the end yeah. of that film, when Thor was talking to Odin, who was actually Loki, he was always saying, despite all his flaws, Loki was always right to rule Asgard rather than me. So maybe now he's in the, is the place where he wants to be, he's going to be all right about it. It won't be enough for him. Yeah, Thor won't no. necessarily be right anyway. I mean, no. he's... No, no, that's fine. He's a bit... He's <laughs> not the, the brightest. ...with Loki for a long time because theoretically he could be right for a long time until something comes up where he decides he wants more. Yeah. Um... But yeah, no, obviously Loki, massive plus on that. And like I said in the review earlier, the the battle at the end, um, I actually really enjoyed the way that was set up. The kind of shifting of realms added something different, mm-hmm. something different to look at. Do you know what I uh, thought? You know what I, when, when they got the map of London out and you saw yeah. Croydon, I thought they're going to go to Croydon and that's where it will take place for some reason. But then you'll see a poster of the guy, uh, a bit of, um, of, What's his name? Ben Kingsley. Ben Kingsley yeah. playing, you know, the guy as he was. Was it Trevor Slatterly? Trevor. That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll see a poster of him on the background as whatever character he was, you know, in the was it Hamlet or something? Yeah. He, oh yeah. yeah. He was, that would have been Iron Man Three. He was a toast of Croydon. Yeah. And there was <laughs> a big poster of him outside the theatre, like in the background, kind of in his that red. Awesome. Yeah. 
No, that would have been a nice. They don't thing. have me writing Hollywood films. Yeah. So. Really not. Right. But it, it it mixed in, um, which I think the Avengers did well as well, uh, when it had those moments of, yeah, they had the Hulk, obviously, they didn't have the Hulk here, but there was some there were some funny lines. There was uh, the way the taxi cab was destroyed at one point was awesome. Seeing a taxi cab squash like that, and again the other really huge laugh of the film uh, that I got in my cinema was um, how do I get to Greenwich with three stops? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, oh, it, and it was, that was just a really nice line, and it just it just made you really. Uh, it, I love that it didn't take itself too seriously, and I don't think it can, considering, like Owen was saying earlier, the ludicrousness of the idea of Thor. If it takes itself too seriously, I think it gets dragged down, and and, and I really enjoyed that. Um, the other thing I did really enjoy, I, I, I really liked the um, the funeral of uh, Frigga, Frigga, Renny Russo, yeah, the mum, yeah. yeah. Um, that was actually, again, a really solemn, you know, we had a major character die. Not a major, major character, but yeah, a major character die. Although it did massively remind me of Game of Thrones, and of course, the director of mm. this has directed a lot of episodes of Game of Thrones, and there was, there was elements there. But I, I, thinking back, I, I think the film ended strongly, which probably, you know, only talking to you two about it, actually, if I come I've come to that conclusion. I think it ended strongly, which is why I came out thinking I'd enjoy it. And I did enjoy it. Um, it was a good seven and a half to an eight for me. Um, that seems massively the... overrated. Really? <laughs> Hugely. I mean, I don't hate it as much as Steve seems to have no. you know, disliked it, but I, for me, it was probably a bit of five out of ten. Just very middle of the road. Oof. Uninterested in most of the scripts. Didn't really do anything with the characters. We, we it was flipped, interesting. We flipped positions on this like we did with uh, Man of Steel. Yeah. We've already had that little, yeah. uh, that little conversation. Well, I think I think that'll wrap up spoiler alert for now. Um, as you mentioned earlier, thanks for everyone who listened, contributed, etc., etc. And we'll be back next week with more film-related gubbins. The failed critics are James Diamond, Steve Norman and Owen Hughes, with original music provided by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. You can find us at failedcritics.com, at Facebook at facebook.com slash failedcritics, and on Twitter at at failedcritics. If you open this podcast, you better watch your back. This ain't no podcast on a bush and cricket yak. If you like failed critics, just open your ear hole. Carl will tell you about the movies from the internet store.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.